0: to Tales of Panem, a Hunger Games podcast. My name is Claire, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm glad to have you all joining me this week. Make sure to check out my social media, which is at Tales of Panem on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok for updates, episode information, and more. This week's episode will cover chapters 11 through 15 of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, and as usual, I'm going to start off with a brief recap of the chapters. And spoiler alert, it's not that brief because there's a lot going on, <laughs> but I tried to condense it as much as possible. Coriolanus agrees to have more faith in Lucy Gray, and the two begin to strategize about how she could potentially win the games. When Dr. Gall asks Sejanus about Marcus and whether or not he knows where he is, Sejanus snaps at her, calling out the horrific treatment of the districts by the Capitol, which shocks the rest of the class. Dr. Gall then assigns them an essay on their favorite parts of the previous war. The tributes who have elected to participate in the interviews are each given a brief time with Lucky Flickerman, the new host of The Hunger Games. Lucy Gray sings a song called The Ballad of Lucy Gray Baird about her life before being reaped for the games. The song makes Coriolanus jealous as she is clearly singing about a past lover. Coriolanus receives help from Tigress writing his paper about the war, and the next day in class, the students go around and share their responses. The mentors have their last meetings with their tributes, and Coriolanus admits to Lucy Gray that he has feelings for her. He gives her a rose and some food for the arena, along with his mother's old compact, which he subtly suggests she fills with rat poison to help her in the games. As they're saying goodbye, they kiss. On the morning of the games, the mentors are interviewed by Lucky and Dean Highbottom is interviewed as well. Clemencia returns and rejoins the other mentors, expressing obvious hostility towards Coriolanus. When the games begin, everyone is shocked to see Marcus strung up in the arena, especially when they see that he is still alive. This deeply upsets Sejanus, who accuses everyone of being monsters and storms out. The games otherwise get off to a somewhat slow start with most of the tributes choosing to hide rather than fight aside from Lamina climbing up and killing Marcus. When Coriolanus returns home that night, Sejanus's mother is in his apartment. She is concerned because Sejanus never returned home. As she is about to be ushered out by the snows, they spot Sejanus on screen, having snuck into the arena. Coriolanus and Mrs. Plinth are instructed to come to the stadium, and it is decided that Coriolanus will be sent into the arena to get Sejanus out. After he talks him into leaving, they are on their way out with Marcus's body when Bobbin, the male tribute from District 8, attacks them with a knife. And that is where we end. Not... Kind of a kind of a cliffhanger to end ourselves on. um But I, I did want each section to be did- divided in half. This book was actually easier to divide up than the others because the other books each section had nine chapters, so I had to choose whether like there was a better breaking point after the fourth or fifth. But this one, they all just have ten, so we're seeing five. Hence, why the recaps are getting longer, and also there's just a lot, a lot going on, which does bring me to like. I think this book has really good pacing. I actually think all the Hunger Games novels have really good pacing. Um, I know some people don't like the pacing in Mockingjay, but as we all know, I'm a Mockingjay defender first and a human being second, so I thought the pacing was good. But anyway, back to Valid. This book has really, really good pacing Um, in that there is a lot going on. There is a lot that happens in this novel, Um, but it's very well pace there was never like i never felt like there was a point where i was like we need to slow down or also a point where i was like this is really dragging um she did a really good job of balancing out like each part with enough action with enough development um to make it a really good book but this section in particular part two honestly but like beginning with these five chapters things are really starting to pick up and obviously that coincides with like the games are starting so obviously there's a lot of, of action involved in that but also we are getting it all through a spectator's point of view which is not something that we have ever gotten um, because obviously in the original books we're always getting it from Katniss's point of view who is always a tribute in the games that we are following. So it is very, it's a very different experience also accompanied with the fact that the spectator whose point of view we're getting it from is Coriolanus Snow. And he obviously has some thoughts, almost all of which we disagree with very strongly. Um, But anyway, this section is crazy. This is also, unsurprisingly, when I first read the book, the section that made me fall in love with Sejanus Plinth's character. Not that I didn't like him before, but I was still kind of trying to figure him out. I was like, okay, he's clearly, like, supposed to be the person who is, like, in the right, in this group of characters. Like, if that makes any sense, like, he's very obviously the person we're supposed to, like, root for. But this is the section that cemented him as, like, per- like my favorite character in this book. It um, also has my favorite scene of his, which, trust, I will be speaking about it. Which is the scene where Doctor Gall is like, "Hmm, where's your tribute?" And he's like, "Well, whenever you find him, you're just gonna kill him, whatever." And then he basically calls her and just the capital in general out, and he says this line: "Hang on, I have the book next to me. I need to. I need to direct quote this one because, oh my God, he is just everything to me." Hang on, I'm, I'm searching. Yeah. Okay. So she's like, "Where's your tribute?" Um. And he's like, I literally have no idea. Do you? And then he says, you know, I'm just going to read this whole quote from him because it's so good. And if you're not actively rereading right now, you need to remember this one. So he says, no, don't answer. He's either dead or about to be when you catch him and drag him through the streets in chains. And Dr. Gall says, that's our right. And Sejada says, no, it isn't. I don't care what you say. You've no right to starve people, to punish them for no reason. No right to take away their life and freedom. Those are things everyone is born with, and they're not yours for the taking. Winning a war doesn't give you that right. Having more weapons doesn't give you that right. Being from the capital doesn't give you that right. Nothing does. And then he like tries to leave, and then the door's locked. But anyway, that's the quote I really wanted to get at. Um, his best scene, absolutely, absolutely, at least in my opinion, and I feel many others. Um, and that was really the scene for me where I was like. I would do anything for you. You are the moment. Um, you know, let's just talk about Sejanus now, because that's pretty much at the towards the beginning of that chapter anyway. Um, but basically, and I I do want to touch back on something I talked about I last week, where I talked about how Sight, Sejanus is is a fairly like naive character, but I don't want that to, I don't want people to think I'm saying that he's not smart because he is a very intelligent character. Um, he's also very clever, which I'll talk about more later but he's very intelligent, especially, like, emotionally intelligent, which I think is a really, like, can be an undervalued form of intelligence, uh, Intelligence, especially when we're getting this all through Coriolanus's point of view, who very clearly values, like, academic intelligence and, like, cleverness over something like that, um, and I think that I hate, I hate to, I drew a connection to Peter Valarque last week, and I'm going to do it again, even though, like, I see uh, people compare to Janus and Peter a lot. And I actually don't, I they obviously have similarities, but I, I think they are very different characters. However, one thing that I think they both have in common is that people really underestimate their intelligence because, you know, like Peter Malark is an insanely smart character, but sometimes it gets overshadowed by people being like, oh, he's like the nicest guy ever. Like he's such a good person, blah, blah, which like is all extremely true. But his intelligence is something that gets overlooked in that conversation, and I think it's very similar with Sejanus. Um, but yeah, he he has this moment where he has this, like, outburst at Dr. Gall, which again, like, it's 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 two things, because on one hand, you're like, Dr. Gall is dangerous, and he doesn't even know how dangerous. Like, he doesn't know about what happened at Clemencia, you know? But, like, the things he's saying are extremely radical, at least in the Capitol's eyes. Which, again, like, he's literally just saying that the capital doesn't have the right to treat people like lesser beings basically but that's like like oh my god I can't believe you said that even though as a reader you're like yeah this is just like common decency um but obviously to the capital they think they're better than everyone blah 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 all this stuff I've been repeating over and over again but he is just like that's where the kind of like naivety thing comes in because it's like he's putting he doesn't even realize how much danger he's putting himself in. Um and just like he he really wants to here's the thing about Sejanus is that he above all else is driven by the desire to do to do the right thing. He's always going to do the right thing. And like obviously that is extremely admirable, especially in the world that he lives in where like doing the right thing is going to mean going against everyone around him. Like literally everyone. And so you have to respect that but also it's like there is a there's a strategy in rebellion and obviously that's something we see a lot in this series is that like sometimes you have to like play the long game basically um and that is what he like gradually learns throughout this novel or in some cases doesn't learn um it's like when they're in the arena and he's like this okay the scene where they're in the arena i know i'm skipping really far ahead but like whatever It's so, because Snow is, like, comforting him, and, like, he's saying all this stuff that on one hand, I'm like, you are making points right now. Like, hate to say it, but, like, Coriolanus, you're making some points there. When he's, like, because Sejanus is, like, no, just, like, let the world see me die in protest. Incredible line, by the way. Um, But, and then then Coriolanus is, like, okay, sure, you could die here, but, like, first of all, they're not going to show it. No one's going to know you died here like in this way they're just gonna say that you like he literally the example he uses is that you like had a bad flu because that's exactly what they said with clemencia like the capital is never going to let that truth get out and he's very right about that and then he's like come out of here with me and you can use like your family's money and your intelligence and your like standing to actually help people which is like actually really true like he the capital is not going to let anyone know if he dies in the arena or what he died for but if he goes if he goes with Coriolanus goes out and then like uses what he knows about the capital and like his own abilities his own intelligence to like stand up for what is right that is ultimately going to be more valuable because at least people will know about it um however Coriolanus is not saying any of this stuff because he actually wants Sejanus to like stand up against the capital he's saying it because he wants to get out of there because basically what I I laugh so hard when he's like going into the arena and he's like so what happens if I like come back without Sejanus and the peacekeepers were like mm, don't do that because we might not let you out um which is just like man Dr. Gall is such a good villain in that she is like literally crazy in like a very unique and interesting way if that makes any sense like you just know that like when Sejanus went into the arena she was like oh my god this is the best thing to ever happen to me because now I can send little Coriolanus Snow in there after him like you know she was so happy about it as probably was Dean Casca Highbottom in a very different way um but I'm I'm withholding most of my conversations about him till the end because there is some critical information that we have yet to learn Although we do learn in this section, actually, that he used to be friends with Snow's dad, which is very interesting information to Coriolanus Snow, and that they used to, like, play together at um, Pluribus Bell's club, which, again, we'll talk about him, too. Yeah, you know Gaul was like, man, I wish I could control this to Jaina's kid, but, like, whatever is happening now is so entertaining to me that I literally don't even care anymore. Um, And so... So, yeah, he, like, says all this stuff to Sejanus, and I'm like, man, I wish someone that I actually liked or respected or cared about would be saying all this stuff to him, because, like, maybe he should listen, um, but, like, you know Snow is literally only saying it for his own personal gain, and he's, like, actively thinking about how he needs to, like, manipulate Sejanus to get him out of there, not because he cares about him, but because he doesn't want to be killed in the arena, and also because he doesn't want to get in trouble for not getting him out, um... But yeah, that whole scene is just like, oh God, it messes with your brain. I do, I literally have such a vivid memory of the first time I read this book, which has now been like th- literally three years, actually, almost to the day, because um, we just passed the three year anniversary of the book. Happy birthday to the Ballad of Songbirds and Stakes. Um But anyway, I have this really vivid memory of me sitting at my desk. I had the book, I was reading the book, and I read the scene where they like, it's literally the line where where Ma Plinth is like, I don't need to go home because, like, my boy is on the screen right there and they see him in the arena. Like, I remember my jaw dropping. Like, I'm not, like, literally. Not in, like, a metaphorical sense. Like, I literally, my jaw dropped. And because... <laughs> Not that I ever thought this book was going to be predictable. Like it's, it's Suzanne Collins, like girl, no, no one could ever predict anything that she is going to do, but like, you kind of go into it and you get introduced to the characters and you're like, okay, I kind of see where we're going here. Like with this relationship between Snow and Lucy Gray and like Sejanus role in it and like, you know, the like Dr. Law, who's like the evil scientist character and also like the head game maker. Like you, you kind of, you feel like you have an idea of how things are going to play out and I feel like this moment where Sejanus is in the arena was a moment where I was like nothing, there is no reality in which I ever would have predicted that that would happen. Um, much less I, Snow going in after him is just hilarious to me. But um, but yeah, like that moment really flipped for me. Because also up to that point, like Sejanus is very much like, you know, I'll, I'll talk back to my professors and I'll like say what I feel. But this is something different entirely and something that I didn't necessarily expect from his character. And it's also like, you know, everyone else is shocked by it too, like in in universe. Um, But yeah, it really like flips your whole perspective on this book on his character on like, and that was a moment at which I was like, I literally have no idea what is going to happen the rest of this novel. And then I like was reading the end of the novel and I was like, yeah, I definitely didn't predict this. Like it's it's insane. Um I just, Suzanne, let me inside your brain. I want to see what's going on in there. I want to see how you come up with this stuff. But anyway, um, yeah, this is really, really a defining section for Sejanus plinth Um anyway, I feel like I have more to say about him. Maybe I'll come back to it. There is also actually I do have more to say about him right now. Um, there's also something really like heartbreaking about how much Sejanus cares about and trusts Coriolanus, especially when we are reading this book through Coriolanus's, like, perspective, in that, like, it's not necessarily being narrated by him, but, like, we are very much inside his mind, and you literally have him, like, every single time Sejanus is brought up being, like, oh my god, everyone thinks I'm friends with this guy, and I literally am not, and I literally can't even really stand him, and, like, I don't care about him at all, and I just, like, whatever, whatever. Meanwhile, Sejanus is like, oh my god, Corio, like, you're always rescuing me, like, I literally don't know what I would do without you, and I'm like, Sejanus, let me be your best friend, actually, because you really need, like, a friend who's actually cares about you and is going to be there for you, um, and I will be that person for you, because I care about you a lot, but yeah, it is truly, like, tragic that Snow is the person that he ended up with, So I'm just like, oh, Sejanus, you deserve so much better than him. Um. Anyway, now actually, let's move on from Sejanus. No, actually, let's not. (laughs) Sorry again. I do have to quickly touch on the scene where he throws the chair and is like, "Every single you're all monsters here." Um, which that scene was in the trailer. Shocking to me. Actually, I do wish there was more Sejanus in the trailer, but I didn't think they would include this scene. Um. But I'm very glad that they did because it's such a good scene. I am, let me express my concerns now that I really hope, it's less concerns and more like I really hope they don't do it. I really hope they don't change Marcus, like what happens to Marcus in any way. Because it is obviously very, very dark. And those are the kind of things that like in the original movies, they kind of tried to stray away from or at least kind of like dole down the like really really dark and gruesome elements which you know on one hand I'm like okay I get it like you know you're trying to reach a wider audience and some stuff is like it's different to like read about it versus seeing it but like and there were some things that they did that with that I was like this felt very important like this should not have been changed Marcus's like everything that happens to him I really think that it needs to be done exactly as it is in the book as much as it's, like, obviously going to be extremely difficult to watch, it's very important that, like, this is something, because now up to this point, we've seen the Capitol, and, like, we as readers are very well aware of the horrible things that the Capitol is doing to people for the next literally 65 years, um, and so it's not, like, Necessarily shocking to us as readers, like it's still like an oh my gosh this terrible moment, but it's not like you're like shocked, surprised that they would do this to him. However, it is really shocking to all the mentors, and obviously Snow in particular because he's like our our character that we're following, because like I was saying up to this point, we have seen you know the Capitol has like displayed the bodies of the other tributes that like the ones that like died trying to flee in the bombing and like brandy after she killed arachne like stuff like that but this is something entirely different because marcus is still alive and everyone can tell like it's he's very obviously still alive and so this is like active torture um and that's something that like The mentors are really taken aback by. And that is why it is such a jarring moment to Sejanus, because he's like, they're literally torturing this person that like I is not, it's not just that it's his tribute, it's someone that he knew. And that's why he didn't want him as his assigned tribute. And that's why this moment is so deeply upsetting to him, especially as someone who already really cares about like what is happening to the people in the districts. Okay, now I think I'm done talking about Sejanus. Um, for now at least. Okay. Actually, while we're on the topic of like treatment of the districts, which we will be on the topic of for pretty much the entire episode because like that's a huge thing in this book, obviously. Casca Highbottom, who I literally know, I know I said like 10 minutes ago that I wasn't going to talk about him that much, but I do want to talk about one thing. Um, and I'm actually pulling it up with in the book again because I want to remember. I should have just written these quotes down. Um, I want to remember the, sorry, I just, oh my god, I just accidentally was flipping to the part where Casca Highbottom is like, you know that friend of yours from 2, the emotional one, you might want to find him a seat near the door, Jesus Christ, anyway, um, okay, yeah, Lucky Flickerman says, no, no, we have to go back before that, okay. Highbottom says, it's essential, as they say, to know your enemies, so what better way to get to know each other than to join forces in the Hunger Games? The Capitol won the war only after a long, hard fight, and recently our arena was bombed. To imagine that on either side we lack intelligence, strength, or courage would be a mistake. And then Lucky Flickerman says, but surely you're not comparing our children to theirs. One look tells you ours are a superior breed, and he says one look tells you ours have more have had more food nicer clothing and better dental care assuming anything more a physical mental or especially a moral superiority would be a mistake that sort of hubris almost finished us off in the war okay Cascai bottom i see you because again this is a very radical thing to say and he's the literal dean of the academy like this is this is entirely different than sejanus plinth and 18 year old being like Hey, maybe we should treat the districts better. This is Dean high Highbottom saying this stuff. And like everyone is like, oh, wow. He really said that. Like, that's that's no good. Um, but as a reader, you're like, oh, slay, like, because he's literally right. He's literally right, obviously. Like, obviously, we all know this. Is that the the capital people are no better than the district people? That is the whole like ding 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 big point ever that like the capital is in control and so they want everyone to think that they're better but like especially when he says like we have no we especially have no moral superiority to the districts which they always like to act like they do but they're the ones killing the district's children they're the ones who literally like strung Marcus up to torture him, like. I, anyway, I just, I think about that line a lot, um, wow, Kowska Highbottom, man, I feel like each reread, but specifically this reread, for whatever reason, maybe it's just because of after the trailer, and seeing, like, Peter Dinklage in that role, it, like, changed my perspective on it, too, but I'm just, like, I never really, like, got how much his character hits until now, like, I just, i feel like I'm now fully seeing, like, the genius of his character, anyway, let's see, what do I want to talk about now? Let's talk about Lucy Gray and her song and that. (laughs) And by that, I mean Cori reaction to it. Because she sings a song about, like, this, like, heartbreak she endured back in District 12 and how she, like, is a survivor and how she managed to survive everything that happened to her and, like, keep herself alive. And Snow is literally, like... (laughs) He gets all jealous. And also, this is, again... The moment where he's like realizing how jealous he is he's like she literally is mine like everything she does is just a reflection of me she's not even her own person there's literally a line where he's like if that doesn't say ownership what does again hmm let's let's some of us reevaluate our perspectives on this relationship because why would you ever want her to end up with someone who thought that way about her like period but anyway um So yeah, he does all he does all that so much jealousy, so much possessiveness. And those are like the defining traits of their relationship is his jealousy and his possessiveness of her and her like desperately trying to see the good in him. And it's not she doesn't have to try that hard because she sees good in everyone. It's not like the reason she's not trying that hard isn't because there is so much good in him. It's because she is able to see good in people. And that, again, like, that is one of her biggest strengths. Because, like, when you're someone like Coriolanus Snow, who only wants to see bad in all the people that are from the districts, you miss, like, really important things. And, like, that's, like, when Lucy Gray, like, teamed up with Jessup, Coriolanus would have never advised her to do that. He would have been, like, you can't trust him. And she's, like, well, I think that I can. That kind of thing. Um... But he does, oh my gosh, he has this conversation with Tigress after the interviews about her song. And Tigress is, like, literally everyone loved it. And Coriolanus is, like, I don't know, like, it kind of has negative implications because, like, there's a line about, like, how she survived on her charms. And Tigress is, like, well, yeah, but, like, she's a performer, you know? Like, it probably doesn't mean anything beyond that. And then he's basically, like, I don't know, what if she was doing something that, like, we would... We in the capital would consider to be like undignified. And Tigress is like, we all did questionable things during the war, or we all did things we didn't want to have to do. And so we in the capital have no right to like frown down on the people in the districts for doing what they had to do to survive. And we literally did the same thing. And she basically like, she implies to Coriolanus that she, he's like, but you never did anything like that. And she's like, didn't I? But and then he's like, I don't even want to know what it was. But you know, obviously the thought is like, because the implication he's making about Lucy Gray with that line and being like, what if people think that, like the 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 implication Tigress is fake is the idea of like basically selling yourself and selling your body, which Snow was like, or Coilantis is like, oh, but that's never something Tigress would have done. And it's like, okay, but like she literally. Had to make difficult decisions to keep herself and Coriolanus and their whole family alive. And so the idea that he would even judge her for that or that he would judge someone from the districts for doing the same thing is what she's basically trying to like call him out on, essentially. And that's why he basically is like, I don't really want to know what she had to do. But I just like putting this in the context of like, this is the same Coriolanus Snow who like forced Finnick O'Dare and like dozens of other young victors to like sell their bodies for his gain against their will i might add and just like the the whole like the context of everything that happens with Tigers in the future where we don't even have all the answers there but that she was basically like forced out of the games and she basically implies that it's because snow decided she wasn't pretty enough anymore ugh Nasty man. This like this whole conversation is already like it's upsetting enough because you're like thinking like oh, Tigress had probably to do some hard things, um, and you feel bad for her, but also like the nerve of him to be like oh my gosh, like I can't believe she had to do those things, and then he he goes on and forces other people to do the same things, and also like actively says that he would look down on someone for doing those things, which is why he's like oh, do you think the people at Capitol are gonna like. Look down on Lucy Gray for implying that she might have had to do something like that and anyway yeah it's quite it's quite dark it's quite heavy um which I'm also interested in like because obviously none of that got addressed in the original movies like they kind of I well it okay I shouldn't say none of it it does get brought up by Finnick but like the actual like depth to it is not really explored in a way that it is in the books especially with other people like Like Joanna Mason, who basically refuses, and like her family gets killed for it, and Hamish kind of saying that he was like the example in that regard. So I'm kind of, I'm interested to see if they'll leave this specific conversation in the movie and like how much they'll get into it. Once again, I hope that they do, even though it is like not always a fun thing to read and will not be a fun thing to watch. Like these conversations are very very important especially within the context of what we know of the person we know snow to be from the original books slash movies um anyway moving on to something a little less dark okay actually let me just touch back on last week when i talked about my clemencia dovecote peter malark hijacking theories um there were a few other lines in this section that i was like it's all adding to my delusions that they are connected because when she comes back to the other mentors, and this was kind of what I was trying to talk about without actually saying it because I didn't want to spoil anything. She's like mad at Coriolanus and it's like, okay, yeah, obviously, like <laughs> I would be too. Um, but then also she's like just openly hostile in a way that we know, one of the first things we learn about her character, I think pretty much the first thing is that she, everyone loves her because she's so nice. And she like, like has the respect and admiration of her fellow classmates and her professors. And so this is not in line with that at all. And first Snow or Snow is like, I'm gonna avoid her because like he says maybe the venom has unbalanced her. And I was like, that's interesting. But then later he literally says maybe the snake venom had altered her brain. That's literally you know like that's literally Peter Millard. That's literally hijacking. And these effects are not going to go unnoticed by dr gall because this is all all everything is always part of her like big experiment you know which is truly like the spirit of a game maker um but yeah so she like is is actively her personality has shifted and like something is different in her brain as a result of this venom and i'm like wow it's really giving Peter Malark, who also was like a famously nice person until he got hijacked and basically pumped full of tracker Jacker venom, and then was violent and hostile and angry in a way that he literally never had been before. And it wasn't even just towards Katniss. Like obviously they altered his memories of her, and he viewed her as like a threat. But he was like that with everyone. Specifically, like that scene with Finnick Odair in the cafeteria. Um. So, anyway, just more up of thoughts and feelings. Um, oh, let's talk about, like, the start of the games. So, I talked a little bit about, like, Marcus and what they do to him. But then Lamina kills Marcus. And basically what happens is she, like, crawls up on the bar and, like, whispers something to him. And he responds. And they don't, they can't hear anything that they're saying. And then she kills him. Um, so, presumably what is happening here, at least as far as, like, I can infer is that she asks if he wants to be killed and he says yes because he's like literally suffering um again not that we hear any of that but like i'm just i'm just willing to guess i'm just making an assumption here um and and then oh my god pup literally so so annoying he's like that's my girl okay first of all guys you all need to listen to the ballad of song for the snakes audiobook it's narrated by santino fontana who is an actor we don't need to get into it um just like google him if you don't know who he is whatever and it's like i just think that it's so funny hearing like i he's so talented first of all because none of these songs have like actual have like actually been written as songs when he's narrating this book. So it's that that's really a fun part of this is like hearing him basically like read the song lyrics in his like Lucy Gray Baird voice, which is like sounds like an adult man trying to sound like a six-year-year-old girl. Again, this is not like slander. I right? just like and this is how most audiobooks are it's just funny to me because I know him as an actor and it was like funny when I found out that he was going to be narrating this audiobook but the voice he does for pup is literally the most like insufferable sounding kid ever which just adds to my annoyance but he's literally like that's my girl first kill of the game shut up literally shut up literally shut up um <laughs> also it makes me laugh when he when he tries to send her some water and obviously this is the first time they've ever done these sponsor gifts they're still working out like the technology and then it like falls to the ground and spills (laughs) and then he's like hey that's not fair anyway he's just annoying I don't remember what point I was making about this I was just talking about Lamina killing Marcus um also Reaper is another really interesting character to me he's the male tribute from district 11 who funnily enough was assigned to clemencia coat, uh which is also a thing that later later um but she or reaper dill is like dying of dill who's the girl from district 12 not district 12 district 11. i don't know why i said 12. um is the girl from district 11 and she dies of basically what they assume to be tuberculosis some sort of like natural causes and Reaper, like, comforts her. She dies, and everyone's, like, oh my god, like, we thought he would, because he apparently made this comment to the other tributes, basically being, like, sorry, I'm gonna have to kill you all. And Lucy Gray was, like, that was weird. Um, <laughs> But, you know, everyone's kind of trying to, like, cope in their own ways. And he is very, like, big and strong. Like, everyone thinks that he's a serious contender to win. And so when he comforts her, everyone's, like, oh, he's actually, like, so weak. Like, I thought he was gonna be a fighter. Wasn't he saying he was gonna kill everyone? And now he's, like, comforting this dying girl. And it's, like, that is, that's actually what made me like him. Sorry to everyone in the capital for having this like really awful skewed perspective on the world, but like him establishing that like just because I am big and strong does not mean I'm just like a mindless killer who's just gonna kill whoever, and like genuinely like comforting her as she dies is like a really moving thing. Um, even though everyone else is like, oh my god, I thought he was he was supposed to be strong. The stupid annoying mentors, anyway i am sorry i do have a lot of thoughts re like the mentors being like 18 year olds and i forget who says it i think it might be liz Estrada, basically being like we're also kind of being used when you think about it like sure we're not the ones in the games, but we're being used to improve them and to like be a part of this when we're also basically still kids um which coriolanus has to like actually think on but it is very true, and so, like, obviously, some are worse than others, like, Arachne Crane, girl, I don't even know what to say about you, hate to, like, speak ill of the dead, but, mm, yeah, um, and also, it's, like, you know, they are, they're basically still children, yes, but, like also, you're 18 years old, and there is a combination of, like, growing up, being fed all these things about the districts, and also, like, choosing to further, like, the oppression of the districts, which some of them are very much doing. Livia Cardew, I am looking at you. Um and so yeah, there is there is definitely a discrepancy there too. But it is important to keep in mind like how old they are and that they are basically being forced to do this. Like Dr. All is like, oh why don't you like step down then to Sejanus? And it's basically like, but you can't really do that. Like it's a whole thing. Anyway, we don't really have time to, to dig into all that. Right now, but it is very, very nuanced, which is what makes it good and what makes it good writing and what makes them interesting characters. I talked already about Coraline is going to the arena. Um, I'm sorry, it just oh my god, there was something in this chapter that, as I was rereading it, literally made me laugh out loud, and I don't remember what it was. Um, shoot, what was it? It was just some like off-handed comment, and I was like, oh my god, that's so funny. Anyway, I don't remember what it was, so I guess I'll just move on. There's also, we like literally don't have that much time to talk about this. I'm just going to briefly address it. The power of romance and also the power of an underdog, which I, there is a scene that was added for the Hunger Games movie where Snow is talking to Seneca Crane and Seneca's like, everyone loves an underdog. Um, And Snow is like, and mind you, this was well before Ballad was written or even like, thought of um and he and it just like I this conversation go like led to ballads so perfectly and the way it like wasn't even in the book it was just added so that Donald Sutherland could have more screen time um but he's basically like have you ever been out to the districts like the higher number of districts and Seneca Crane is like well no actually um and he's like I have yeah Um, and then he's like there are a lot of underdogs and I think that if you could see them you wouldn't root for them either when you know the context of like Lucy Gray Baird man and this goes directly with the power of like romance because like obviously the Coriolanus Snow we know from the original books knows very well the power of like a romance as it is being fed to an audience and that's why he's so like why he literally threatens Katniss into like continuing this relationship with PETA for the cameras because like that might be the only thing that will like subdue the districts is believing that oh she did it all for love um but it's also because he believes that like love is a weakness and it is largely because of the events of this novel and by largely I mean like literally entirely (laughs) um because of Lucy Gray Baird but he like the song that she sings at the interview Is all about like a past failed romance and like that appeals to people because they like everyone is a romantic when it comes down to it, you know, like that's kind of the idea is that people are like, Oh, this like sad love story that is what is captivating to people. And so he quickly learns how powerful a tool romance can be, as well as the fact that Lucy Gray is such an underdog, which makes people want to root for her. And it's again something that he views as a good thing, but then when we see him later, he's like, I've been around the block and I actually think that it's bad. Um, but yeah, I just that conversation and like re-watching that scene in the Hunger Games will literally never be the same after having read The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes because like you just know how and the whole like I've been out to the districts and I'm like, I know you have. I read it, I read it, I was there. <laughs> I was actually personally there. Anyway, there's a lot more stuff I kind of wanted to talk about, but I'm trying to kind of wrap it up. He kisses Lucy Gray. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just like. Well, I will probably talk more about their relationship as we go further on. But like, there's not much I can say without being spoilery, so I'm just gonna leave it at that. But they do kiss. Um, I wasn't gonna talk about like. I did talk already, actually, about Pluribus not being in the movie. But this is what I'm like. Where is Coriolanus gonna get the guitar from then? because, like, he has to get it from somewhere, and if it's not Pluribus, and also just, like, bring back Pluribus. I want him in the movie. Like I said, he is actually a canonically queer character, which is huge, but also, like, I just like him, and he more and more, he loves Lucy Grey Baird. He loves her, and, like, he literally says that he wants her to headline his club if she wins the games, like, that. How are you gonna just cut him out? Anyway, whatever. I'll see it and I'll see what they end up doing, but I I do wonder about it and it does make me sad because he's like, he's not like obviously like the main character like a main character, but he's an important character and he has like an important role in the story that can't easily be erased. So I am a little about that, but you know, it is what it is. Um, let's see. I talked about Tigress. I talked about, I do have down here that I want to talk about like the way that Coriolanus misunderstands who Lucy Gray is but I can talk about that another time because like we're gonna get more of that obviously Lucky Flickerman I do have a lot of thoughts about him but for now I'll just say what a guy but I think I covered pretty much everything else I wanted to I spent much longer talking about Sejanus Plinth than I originally intended um but that's how it's gonna be on here it's like he's like the Hamish Abernathy of this novel um even though I could never love anyone as much as I love Hamage, but in the way that I will like find a way to talk about him for literally ever, even when he's not there. Although at least in this section, he did do a lot, so I'm warranted. But trust, I will be speaking about him even when he is not doing anything. So <laughs> thanks for joining me this week on Tales of Panem. For those of you reading along with me, next week's episode will be covering chapters 16 through 20 of The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. If you have any specific questions or topics you'd like me to cover, you can DM them to me on any social media or send them to my email, which is talesofpanam at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave a review or rating on the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would be very appreciated. Thanks again for listening and I'll be back next week.